So anybody, a disgruntled former employee, can bring a false claims act case. It is a tough job. You often encounter people when they're in a very stressful situation. I think what it means is clarity on what it is that we're doing, established written policies, any opportunity to reduce the ambiguity with regards to your team and your staff so that they understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and you've got it documented. Welcome to GovCon Live. I'm your host, John Williams, and this is the first episode of XREL Radio, our multi-part series on the False Claims Act, which will include commentary on potential pitfalls for your company, enforcement issues, and emerging trends in this important area of the law. Today, we're going to be talking with Cy Alba, a partner in our False Claims Act team, and Dave Schaefer from our cybersecurity group about concerns surrounding the False Claims Act, implied certifications, and cybersecurity. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and we're hoping to have some fun too. But we're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. All right, disclaimer over. Let's have some fun. Cy and Dave, thanks for joining us on XRL Radio. How are you guys doing? Good. Happy to be here. Yeah, doing great. Good, good. All right. So we've got a good mixture today of two of our key teams here at Polaro Mazza, False Claims Act team and the cybersecurity team. Cy, you're on the False Claims Act team. Dave's our, one of our cybersecurity gurus. <laughs> so this is an area that you might not necessarily think of as a match made in heaven, you know, like uh, cybersecurity is its own sort of technical. We're not really, we're still figuring out what the requirements are, right, Dave? And there's a lot of changes there. We had a great event earlier this summer on cybersecurity. Yeah, we did. We did. And we actually had a whole podcast series preceding that. And and kind of to your point, John, you know, one of the interesting things about cybersecurity is that for years it was the domain of the chief technology officer or a third party IT infrastructure. I don't have to worry about. I'm just, I just, I'm just going to subcontract that out to somebody else. Right. And, and it's really started to become a C-suite level issue and it started to become a discussion and it's starting to migrate closer and closer to the heart of a bid in the heart of a company. And all of a sudden, you know, everyone laughed at us technical people, but we're back. <laughs> Going to rule the world. Well, you know, I mean, it is, that's what our event earlier this summer was all about, how it's becoming a competitive discriminator in the award of contracts and mergers and acquisitions. And that's becoming even more prevalent. But I think there's also a really interesting additional angle side that we're seeing with cybersecurity and how it's now, because like Dave said, it's becoming more ubiquitous. It's more of a, it's a, company-wide issues, not just the domain of the technical folks, it's becoming more of a False Claims Act issue too, isn't it? If everybody in your company is, there's more cognizance around this, and then that can have some ramifications as we're already starting to see in the court system under the False Claims Act. So why don't you, you know, this is the first episode in this series on the False Claims Act. So why don't you start us off, if you could, with a, just a little bit of a background on the False Claims Act. Sure. So as people may know, the False Claims Act is basically a statute that allows the government to go after not just contractors, but in many cases, it's contractors who 
make false representations in order to get some compensation from the government. And it can also come up in what they call reverse false claims where contractors make misrepresentations in order to reduce how much they owe to the government in various circumstances. But for purposes of this, we're really talking about the standard False Claims Act and the certification that people make when they win contracts stating that they are going to be compliant with various cybersecurity requirements that are now in a lot of contracts. Everybody probably knows or a lot of people who are listening know about the DOD requirements and under the FAR or the DFARS that that came out. But there are also non-regulatory requirements that a lot of civilian agencies are putting in their contracts. So there are clauses in your contract that don't originate from a regulation. And they can be similar to the DFARS clauses. They can be a little different. You just have to pay attention. But you need to realize that if it's in the contract and therefore in the RFP that you're bidding to and you accept a contract that has it in it, that you are certifying that you're going to be compliant with that. That's how that works, right? If it's in the contract and you sign to the contract, you're agreeing to comply with it, right? And we had a civilian, a client that had a civilian agency procurement not too long ago that exactly to your point, Cy, included, this is a civilian agency, but they included DFARS cybersecurity requirements. The most common one that I think we're all talking about is the NIST compliance, NIST Special Publication 800-171. The civilian agency contract said you've got to be fully compliant with the NIST 800-171. So it's a really, I mean, it could be in your contracts, not just DFARS, DOD at this point, right? Yeah, and I've, I've seen it too with other other contracts. I saw it in an NIH contract where a company was setting up a test environment and they said the same thing. I don't know if it went so far as the, as the NIST standard in that particular one. It was an older contract, but it, it already had it in there. That was years ago to have some cybersecurity and it had specific requirements in there because there's an NIH publication in that case. And it's not exclusively cyber, right, Dave? I mean, we've seen some instances recently that you and I have been working on together where it's maybe it's a mixture of cyber requirements, but also HIPAA and other privacy-related issues. Right. Yeah. It's it's really interesting because a lot of times we all kind of conflate the idea of cybersecurity and privacy, and we they're really related, and we mash them all together in our heads. And, and tend to take somewhat of a myopic view of what we need to do. But to that point, there are privacy regulations. There are privacy contractual obligations. There are cybersecurity that may relate to how you safeguard those that information that you need to keep private. But we are seeing a lot of a lot of HIPAA being implemented through a contractual provision that you have to have the Privacy Act and the security rule. You have to comply with those types of things where we didn't used to see that before, but everyone's taken a really broad protective view of the information that they're, that an agency is going to be giving out, and they're really trying to safeguard everything. I think everyone is understanding and acknowledging you know, that they don't want to be the next OMB with a, with a large breach. They don't want to be the next. They don't want to have, you know, we've got a large subcontractor at a data breach down at the border that's still being worked out. And, you know, you have all of those types of things. So everyone's being really protective and they're probably shoehorning in a lot of regulations and a lot of requirements that may not actually be necessary for the performance of the contract, but you're not going to 
talk the contracting officer out. Yeah, of I mean they're taking the better better safe than sorry approach, I guess. So I, I think the the key takeaway at this point is when we say cybersecurity, maybe just to, to sum up, in the past that connoted something very specific to the CTO, the technical computer, maybe three-letter agency type concerns, really sensitive contracts. It's much broader than that now. So when we say cybersecurity mixing with False Claims Act, we're talking about a lot of things down to personally identifiable information, right, Dave? That's absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, the way I like to kind of think through it is, you know, talking about the NIST, the 171, you know, one of the first families that, that you have to be compliant with is access to information. Cybersecurity is limiting the access, what technical protocols you have in place, what policies and procedures you have in place to limit the access. And then privacy is limit access to what? It's the what. And so you've got those two kind of elements that are really combining. And that's where, you know, a a CTO level is going to talk about the technical access. They're going to put everything in place, but then they're not thinking through the protecting what. And then a lot of our business ops people, our COOs, they're thinking about the what, but they're not thinking about the the access. So it really, you know, we're melding those two things together and everyone's melding those two things together. So interoperability and cohesion within your own company is becoming a lot more important. So we have these broader requirements showing up with greater frequency in our government contracts, whether it's DOD or civilian. So Cy, what's the threshold for having an issue under the False Claims Act? And how does this become a problem? I get it. It's in my contract. I'm supposed to comply with what's in my contract. But like, what's the standard that I have to adhere to to avoid a False Claims Act issue? So under the False Claims Act itself, mere negligence is not sufficient to render liability. So if you negligently do something, you're not going to get hit with either civil or criminal. It doesn't matter. You're not going to get hit with a False Claim Act violation. Whereas if you do something knowingly, willfully, knowingly, or you do something with reckless disregard for the truth or falsity of the certifications that you're making, those two, recklessness or knowing, are the standards. So in the case here, when you're dealing with cybersecurity, if you know that you're not meeting the requirements of the contract and you're bidding on it and you're performing anyway, that would be the clearest False Claim Act violation. You know, if you have emails going back and forth with your technical folks and say, you know, oh, well, your tech guys are telling you this is what's required for X, Y, and Z to be NIST compliant and you write back to them and go, that's way too expensive. We're not doing this one, this one. We'll just do these two effectively, your IT people have told you these are the requirements and you've said, we're not doing some of those and you bid anyway, that would be a great email for the Department of Justice or whatever IG to find that would then likely turn any sort of investigation into a false claim at case because they would say you knew that you were doing it. And again, just getting real basic here, but the false claim being that you're certifying to the government because you signed the contract that you're going to comply with all these cyber requirements and then you submit a claim for payment to the government on that contract. Is that essentially what it is? It's a, it's a false claim for payment to the government on a contract that you're not actually complying with because you totally blew off the cyber requirements? Yeah, and to that point, each invoice is a separate violation. 
So it could be it's like 11,000 ish per violation. So if you're five years into a contract, then each one of those, each invoice you submitted, aside from the damages the government could recover, would have $11,000 of statutory damages like on each one. So that's basically say, I don't know, 132 a year if you're submitting invoices like every month. And in addition to that, whatever damages are the government suffered. And I know we talk here a lot about the False Claim Act stuff dealing with SBA and small business issues. And in that case, it's been decided that you're hurting the whole program. So the entirety of the contract is the damages. It's not clear what it would be here, whether you could take out, okay, well, what was the actual harm to the government for not complying with this? And I could see in a case we'll get to in a minute that's being litigated right now, damages is going to be an issue. Like, How do you quantify damages in this kind of context where maybe nothing happened, but you weren't compliant? And maybe it's the amount of money that you saved by not being compliant. And if you did it willfully or knowingly, it's three times that plus this 11,000 we're talking about every single time. It's hard to know, but it could be a lot. I mean, it could be millions of dollars on a specific contract. So that's, those are big dollar signs. And yeah. in the eyes of the DOJ and agency enforcement folks that will go after this, I mean, is that a, that's a reason that they would go after these cases is because the dollars can get pretty high, right? Exactly. Or not even them. Let's say the government is saying that ah, this is very wishy-washy, these standards. We can't really tell whether people are compliant or not to the level of certainty we at the DOJ would like to see. That never stops a relator, which is someone who brings what they call a key TAM action, a false claim act case against a contractor. That relator, who's otherwise known as like the plaintiff, might be someone who you fired. Some guy in your IT shop who... You fired because let's say he was really bad at his job and you fired him completely legitimately. He might have gone to a lawyer and they said, you have no claim for wrongful termination. But then he thinks you didn't comply with every little requirement under his interpretation of what's in the NIST standards. And then he goes and finds a different lawyer, maybe the same one, to file a false claim act case against you. And the government doesn't even have to intervene in that. They might say, no, we're not taking that case. The relator has the right to carry it through all the way to trial. And And they get up to 20% of that. So anybody, a disgruntled former employee can bring a false claims act case. I mean, Dave, what does that say to you about the folks in the tech shop at the contractor, you know, even down to like a help desk personnel that is aware that the company isn't following all the cyber practices to a T and then gets let go. So that person theoretically could bring a false claims act case. Yeah. I mean, I think number one, speaking from someone who has been a help desk technician, Initially, just treat them nicely. Someone who's been yelled at quite a few times. That's a Uh, tough job. It it is a tough job. You often encounter people when they're in a very stressful situation. You know, I think what it means is clarity, clarity from the top, clarity on what it is that we're doing, established written policies, any opportunity to reduce the ambiguity with regards to your team and your staff so that they understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and you've got it documented so that you'll be able to foreclose any sort of claim that comes up immediately. And I think, you know, obviously we don't need to tell our listeners that lawyers can be rather expensive in litigation. We don't need to remind everyone of that, but you want to make sure that you can foreclose this immediately and not have to incur additional costs. I mean, I would think the written, like a system security plan, which is 
definitely something that we've been pushing and advising that all contractors at this point need to have. You got to have an SSP, right? And doesn't that go towards intentional or even reckless disregard of the requirements? I mean, if you took good faith steps to put a system security plan in place, side, do you think that mitigates your potential exposure? Yeah, and that's where the knowing standard is probably the most obvious. So to kind of pull back from that, because 90% of people are not doing things knowingly, but to go to the recklessness standard, in that context, if you just put something in place, you put in a system security plan, you put it in place, and it wasn't very good, and or you didn't really carefully study what the requirements were and map it um, and look at it, put it together, DOJ could come in and say that you didn't even try. And if you say, well, no, 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 I'm just negligent. I didn't understand what I was supposed to do. The next thing in my experience, the Department of Justice is going to ask you for is every copy, electronic or otherwise, of any sort of guidance you looked up. They want to know your search history. Did you try to investigate? Did you call your counsel? Did you call a consultant? Like, What did you do to understand what the rule meant what the NIST standards meant, what the DFARS clause meant, what the clause in your contract meant, if it's just a clause. What did you do to investigate and do your due diligence as to what that required you to do and whether or not what you were doing in response was a good faith effort to be in compliance? And if you can't produce any of that, that's reckless disregard. Well, that sounds like a perfect opportunity for me to plug our cyber compliance checkup. <laughs> Dave Dave and I and others on our cyber team, that's exactly what we're doing is to come in and take a look under the hood, have you fill out a questionnaire, get a sense of what you're currently doing. I think it would go perfectly to the point that you're making to be able to show you took some good faith due diligence steps to understand yeah, absolutely. the requirements. And that's where if you did all that and you got it wrong in DOJ's estimation, you'd have a pretty good case for negligence and you're, you're off the hook. It's not, it's not like minimized damages. You're off the hook completely if it's mere neg- negligence. And that's the kind of thing I guess that factors into DOJ's decision even whether to bring the case, right? But can you talk a little bit about the difference or the – not difference, but sort of the involvement of DOJ and the relator and how do, how do those two go together? So – the Department of Justice or the government, Big G, can can bring a case on their own. doesn't have to be a relator. But most of the time with a False Claims Act case, it's relators who start the process. And so that's the disgruntled employee we talked about. Or I had one case where a guy embezzled a quarter million dollars, went to jail, and then got out of jail and as vengeance filed a False Claim Act case. So nothing stops a relator. It can be felons. It can be angry spouses who you're going through a divorce with. It doesn't matter. It can be anybody. And so that's the relator can do it. And if the government does it, they bring their own case with or without a relator. However, if a relator brings the case, it's under seal at first. So no one knows they brought the case. You as the target don't even know that a case has been filed. It's under seal and not just under seal in the sense that you can't see the pleadings. You can't even see that the case has been filed. No one can. However, they serve the Department of Justice. And so the Department of Justice then gets a copy of it. That starts an investigation. So oftentimes, the first notice that a company will get is they'll get a subpoena. If the subpoena is from the IG, it might be just their own investigation. If the subpoena is from the Department of Justice, more often than not, 
that subpoena was initiated by somebody filing a False Claims Act case. Mm. They go through that investigation. Sometimes there's a subpoena. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes they just do their investigation. They find no merit in it. And in that case, they have to choose, the Department of Justice has to choose whether they're going to intervene in the case and effectively take it over. So then it's you versus the Department of Justice. Or say, we don't really like what's been raised here. We don't think there's a viable argument. We're not going to intervene. Or there's not enough money. I've had those cases too where there might be liability, but it's a million bucks. And the Department of Justice has decided it's not worth their time. And in one case, I have, they took the entire file from their whole investigation and they gave it to the relator and they said, here's all the emails. Here's everything we found. Here's everything that was responsive to the subpoena. It's not worth our time, but it might be worth yours. Knock yourself out. And then the relator goes forward and they can carry the case all the way through with private counsel, all the way through to the end. And if you win, great. If you lose... Then what happens is you pay the attorney's fees and whatever is awarded, 20% goes to the relator. And what's important to note is if you're settling a case or if you lose a case like that, even if the attorney took it on contingency, which many of these from the plaintiff side are taken on contingency, even if that happens, technically the individual who hired that lawyer has spent zero dollars, even if it's been going on for five years. However, that lawyer is probably tracking their time. And when it comes to the end, whether settlement or otherwise, they're going to submit their bill in quotes that was never paid by anyone and say, this is the amount of attorney's fees I've expended on this whole process. You owe me that. And then the deal is probably they get 30 or 40% of whatever the settlement or the finding was on top of that. So relators are incentivized because they can get 20% of this. And there's a bunch of plaintiff's lawyers who are incentivized to file whatever case they can because they could potentially get their fees and on top of that, a whole bunch of other money. All right. So these relators are out there doing investigative work that maybe the government doesn't have the resources and manpower to do. That's the benefit that it's serving to bring these cases. Do we think, Dave, that these are viable actions in the cybersecurity space? I mean, one one thing that's occurring to me is besides talking about the standard of knowing or reckless the cybersecurity requirements are complicated to follow. There's a there's a lot of them. They're changing all the time. I mean, this is part of the advice that we're giving to clients. Like, we have a hard time staying on top of what's the latest CMMC you were just telling me about. And so how do we layer in as a contractor that wants to feel good about their ability to defend a case on this? Like, does that play a role, the fact that these are challenging regulations to stay on top of? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the regulations, I mean, you can always start on a real macro level of, of what regulations apply to me, what contractual provisions apply to me, what are industry standards and best practices um, for your particular uh, industry. Do those kind of apply to me? Can I use those to demonstrate reasonableness? And then even the next layer down, when you look at the regulations and you look at the 171 and the other NIST publications, those are all drafted in such a a manner, not ambiguously per se, but they're drafted in a manner that gives a lot of flexibility to the companies to interpret. Because it's drafted for a really small company and it's drafted for massive, large companies, 
for everyone to be able to demonstrate compliance. So there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of vague requirements. What makes it interesting is because it's also tailorable and because it's so ambiguous, it is easier to show a good faith effort to become compliant with all of those regulations and all of those publications and and standards that are set forth. It's easy to demonstrate that you have to try and it really demonstrates by not doing anything, it's pretty obvious that you've just yeah. taken a willful, ignorant approach. You've got to get in the game. You, I mean, you, yeah. yeah, you, you've we, got to get in the game. You need to be aware. Of that. This is what we've been saying in the cyber group. We're, trying, we're getting the word out to our clients. You've got to get in the game. You've got to be aware of what the requirements are and take some steps towards compliance. And for your organization and the information you have in your system, that may not be a very robust program that you need to build out. Other companies, yes, it may have to be really significant. Absolutely. I mean, it's going to be tailorable dependent upon your size, dependent upon your resources, dependent upon the information that you have and your contractual obligations. And it's going to, it's going to change over time. I think that's one of the big things that companies, you know, they, they get set, they've invested up front, but then years have gone by and they haven't revisited the plan. The SSP still has a 2016 date on it. They still have a POAM, which you're not supposed to have a POAM anymore. The grace period's over. You know, it still has all of these. They haven't done their quarterly check-ins. They haven't done their tabletop exercises. And they haven't revisited it. You know, what, you check the box once, but it's not a once, once in a contract or once in a lifetime kind of check. You've got to keep doing it. It's a continuing obligation. It's something that to your point you can't put your head in the sand anymore honestly you can't really get on the washington post or the new york times or and not see something related to cybersecurity. it's unavoidable that somebody and it's really implausible that somebody could say i didn't know that there were cybersecurity requirements first i'm hearing of it that's not going to pass the laugh test yeah so i mean it's going to prevent you from winning contracts potentially and it could hurt you on the back end after you've won and performed and submitted your invoices and then somebody, a uh, disgruntled employee or government brings a false claim act case. So, Sai, how do we think that this is going to manifest if when we're, we've got this marriage that seems to be taking shape between cyber issues and requirements becoming much more prevalent in contracts and the False Claims Act, this mechanism we have to enforce contractors' failure to comply with their contract terms. So it seems does seem natural to me we're going to start seeing False Claims Act allegations related to failing to comply with cyber requirements. Are we already seeing that? What do we expect there? Yeah, so I think one of the things about what we were just talking about with, with being able to defend a case and win a case, that's that's kind of even if you're if you're in a case, you're already you've already lost in some some respect. And so mitigating even getting there, I think, is a really important part. And whether you're you know working with like someone like us or so, and to put put your plan together communicating that to your employees, making everyone very well aware that you know what the NIST standards are, you know what the DFARS clauses, if it applies, or whatever their clauses are, and you're you're mapping, you're being careful to pay attention to that and map it as best you can, and sort of telegraphing that to anyone and everyone who would have access to the way you are performing uh, the work and the way you're running your systems, I think is is a critical element because there's a lot of un, a lot of unscrupulous folks out there and including plaintiffs lawyers who don't care and they just want to file something because they know 
a lot of these cases I've done from the time people file to the time they settle, they can be five years. They can be six years. They can be 10 years. And so when you're doing that, you know that even though it's not a constant role of like attorney's fees for the defendant, it spikes and then goes away and spikes and goes away and people get fatigued and then they're just going to settle. Especially the small companies are just going to say, look, how much can I give you to go away? Well, you don't want that dark cloud following you around for five or 10 years, right? Right. And you can't, even if the government does intervene, you can't settle a False Claim Act case without getting the relator and their counsel to agree. So that's always a messy piece too because if the, even if the government sees that this is not worth their time and they're willing to settle for – I had one where they wanted $150 million and we settled for 160000 even if they're willing to do that, the Relators Council is still like, whoa, 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 whoa. My fees were $100,000. I need whatever percent of, of that and I'm going to hold this up until I get my chunk of change for me outside of whatever you're giving to the government. And so it's sometimes it's a hard choice of like, gosh, do I pay 200 or I do pay 300 to litigate even if I'm going to win? But as far as what's going to happen going forward as well, there is a case that has already been filed out there, the Aerojet case. Now, a lot of people probably already know about the Aerojet case. They already understand everything that's – they probably read a bunch about it if you're really into cybersecurity. But effectively, this is the first case that's been unsealed. And again, we talked about how cases are filed completely under seal. So it's possible that there's other cases that just haven't been unsealed yet that are existing out there. But this is the first one that's been unsealed that we know of, where a relator who was the director of cybersecurity at this company filed this case. That guy had access. He knew what they were doing. He thought that they were willfully, knowingly not following the regulations. And because of that and the rules, because of that, he left the company, got this attorney, and filed a False Claim Act case against the company, alleging a violation of the cybersecurity rules. I see this as being, you know, everyone, I think, sees this as being important because it's the first one. So obviously this could be the sort of bellwether and things, things to, to come. But also what makes this somewhat disconcerting is that this shows you that people are willing to file these cases even with the ambiguity, for lack of a better mm -hmm. term, in some of the NIST standards or in the, the DFARS regulations as to exactly what you're supposed to do. And taking this and making it analogous to some of the small business rules that we see where they're also not clear many times, it's based on the totality of the circumstances test, right? And everyone's like, well, what does that mean? Um, similarly, with the, the cybersecurity rules, they're open to different interpretations and there's a lot of gray. There maybe is a little bit of red where you know you're in the bad zone and a little bit of black if you're in the good zone and then everything else is in the middle. And whether you're too close to the red or not, it's hard for people to tell. And if you have someone who's rather unscrupulous as an attorney who's going to file something or a plaintiff or relator who's very angry at you or for some other reason wants to come after you, there's enough wiggle room in there for people to file things. And I think that's what is potentially happening here and what could happen in, in the future. This case that we're talking about, the Aerojet case, we're just dealing with a motion to dismiss that was denied. The defendant raised a number of issues on why the motion to, to dismiss should be granted and the case should get thrown out, and the court denied all of them. But why that's important is that 
part of the argument was that this is not something that can be raised. It, it's defective. The case is defective on its face because there wasn't enough detail or you didn't allege with sufficient specificity and things like that. And it was all denied. What they haven't done yet is gotten into the merits. Okay, So this is not a ruling saying that Aerojet is liable under the False Claims Act. That has not happened yet. And so it's possible that the company could put forward a whole number of arguments. They'll still win. About what they actually did. Right. But it's going to be costly. And my guess is that this might settle. Well, it is interesting because, you know, we've been talking about there's so many different requirements. They're hard to follow. You know, in particular, the NIST 800-171, you know, there was a grace period. I think, Dave, you alluded to that earlier. I think these were the types of arguments that Aerojet tried to make to get the court to kick this out and say, this guy can't bring a False Claims Act case. He can't charge us with intentional or recklessly disregarding when even the DOD didn't know what we should be doing or was giving us a grace period and what didn't seem to be all that aggressive in monitoring and enforcing. But I think the court didn't buy those defenses, did it? No, I don't, I don't believe the court didn't buy those defenses. The court you know, took a look at it and said, it's not about what they did or what they didn't do. It's about what you did and what you didn't do. You know, and of course, as I mentioned, it's just at the motion to dismiss stage. So we're see and we'll keep monitoring it to see what happens. But it's interesting when you kind of phrase it in that sense of, well, I've got an argument that the DOD didn't actually press us, that maybe they didn't inspect us. They didn't, it didn't seem like they really cared to enforce that particular DFAR provision. And what's interesting is that over this past year, and you know, John and I, we've spoken about this before. The enforcement mechanisms, not just in an FCA sense, but the DOD in particular is leading the way on enforcement of its cybersecurity contractual provisions. It is really pushing these things hard. We've gotten a lot of, and now we're getting it from other agencies as well, um, requests to do penetration testing, requests to see documentation and SSPs, the system security plan, up front. They want to hire more contractors to look into the other contractors to make sure that these things are being protected. And one of the best manifestations of that is that CMMC that, John, you alluded to earlier, the cybersecurity maturity model certification that the DOD is going to be putting in place, which actually goes back to one of the things you discussed before about being competitive, of being a competitive bidder, because the CMMC that is going to be put in place. And, and the latest word just this past week was uh, fall 2020 that it's going to come into place. will essentially create a third-party nonprofit that is going to be a neutral arbiter of your cybersecurity preparedness and your cyber hygiene. And it's going to rate you on a level one through five, with one being just basic cyber hygiene and five being obviously the best uh, cybersecurity posture of all the companies that are rated. And so that rating is now going to be part of your bid where you've got an objective or at least arguably and reasonably objective number and certificate that you have to present uh, with your bid. And so DOD has come out. They said, we have let this go on for way too long. In the past, we have been too lax. In the past, we have not undertaken our enforcement obligations, but that ends now. And they cited this case in their guidance, 
They said, you can see that we care about this. We're following that. We're going to keep pushing it. And to show you how much there's no grace period with the CMMC. If you're making a bid after fall 2020, you need to have it. No ifs, ands, or buts. And so they are taking the lead. Other agencies are likely to follow. So it's really interesting to, to think about what impact that might have on False Claims Act liability for cybersecurity cases when that certification comes online. You know, what, what comes to mind immediately for me is there have been a couple cases within the last few years dealing with False Claims Act allegations for small business programs. And I'm thinking about one in particular in Virginia that dealt with the 8A program. And in that case, the defendant, the former 8A company, won the case. They, they successfully defended the relator's claim that they had violated the False Claims Act during their time in the 8A program. And one of the judges, a central part of his conclusion was the SBA let them into the 8A program. They were in the program. So subsequently, when they were going after 8A contracts and submitting invoices for payment on those contracts, they weren't making an actionable misrepresentation of 8A status. They were simply representing the fact that the SBA had let them into the 8A program. Do you think, Sai, there could be something like that, that when you get certified by this nonprofit, if assuming this all comes online the way they're predicting, and you have your level one basic, probably a lot of our small business clients are, will fit on that level one. Uh, I would imagine they're gearing that towards the smaller firm. So if I've got a level one certification, you know, I mean, it can, is that my, I hate to say it, but is that my get out of jail free card for false claims? Act? What do you think, Sai? I think it's going to be great when that comes online because it will be more of a bright line test. Now, certain RFPs might say you need two or three or whatever, but you'll know and not just know in the legal sense with almost certainty whether you have this or not. And I think the lack of ambiguity from a business perspective is way less risky. It might mean you lose out on certain things, but you know you're going to lose out on it. You're never going to even bid on it versus this cloud of uncertainty that's going to hang over you. And every time you fire someone in your IT department, you're going to be you know, holding on or waiting for the other shoe to drop or whatever that someone's going to come after you. And I think that's great for companies across the board. And when I heard about it, I was talking to Dave about it the other day. I was like, that's, that's amazing because this is the, the real problem is a lack of certainty and false certifications by almost by accident that can be reckless. So CMMC may be a little ways off. I mean, there's still some a fair amount that has to develop there before that's going to be a reality. For con- Are there other things in the meantime, suggestions in terms of preparing or defending against a possible False Claims Act allegation in this space? Yeah, that's where I think right before you even get into a situation where it's a problem, the first thing to do is to understand what the requirements are, educate yourself, attend this podcast, go to other like w- webinars, hire companies to, to help you do that, get, get your checkup from us or whoever, and really learn and understand exactly what you're doing and what the requirements are to the best of your ability and how it would apply to you. And then 
put in place, like Dave said, written policies that track the standards or track the, the clause and make sure your system security plan does the same thing, that it's clear, and then telegraphing that to all your employees so everyone fully understands exactly what you're doing and that you're acting in good faith and making all reasonable efforts in order to understand what is required and that you're following it. That's the most critical like first step because then if somebody tries to file something later, you've got pretty good defenses and even even if you come to the point of just wanting to settle because it's going to be too expensive, I think you could wave that around and say, what are you talking about? You know this is nonsense. And to the extent that it's really clear, you might be able to stop at least scrupulous lawyers, from taking these cases or making representations. And if they make representations that are against something that you have clear evidence that their client knew, that might be sanctionable. And you know you can kind of fight back. And I think one other kind of interesting nuance, just from a more practical perspective, in getting your company either into compliance or enhancing and bolstering its compliance programs, is that I think everyone acknowledges that it costs money and it takes a lot of time to do this. And I think the the reception we've gotten from a lot of agencies that they're not expecting you to, you know, get this done overnight, but they expect you to take it seriously. They expect you to have a plan on how you're going to become in full compliance, about how you're going to monitor it, and about how you're going to allocate resources over a reasonable period of time to do so. You know, a lot of small businesses in particular have financial constraints. It's important to plan ahead. It's important to understand from a cybersecurity basics that this isn't going to go away, that there's only going to be more regulations, there's only going to be more standards that you're going to have to comply with. There's only going to be an increasing opportunity for an employee or a relator to to bring a claim because the standards are going to continue to grow. So plan ahead, start setting aside those resources so that you can hire the experts, hire the professionals so that you can ultimately demonstrate your good faith efforts to comply with the regulations. And again, just from a more practical standpoint, just start thinking through it. How am I going to do this? Let's start saving some money. Let's allocate it over here instead of over here. But just really think through it. It's a necessary investment. I mean, that's what we've been saying. It's don't think of this as just a cost center, you know, compliance as a cost center. Think of this as an investment in gaining a competitive advantage going after contracts and defending against this type of uh, compliance issue on the back end. And I've been also telling people, make sure you have communications with your contracting officers. You know, There's a process in the DFARS clause that requires compliance with the NIST 800-171. There's a process to get a variance from the contracting officer. I'm not sure how many firms are taking advantage of that or, or frankly, how much the contracting officers would really dig into it. It may just be a matter of you've put your paper into the contracting officer that says, here's what we're doing and here's what we're not doing and here's why we're not doing these other steps because they don't fit or they're not necessary or the things we are doing are good enough. Wouldn't that create another defense? Could that be like a government knowledge defense because you told them, here's what we're doing, here's what we're not doing, and why we, why we think it's okay. And it probably just went into a file and the CEO didn't, didn't even respond to it. What do you think, Sai? Absolutely. And that, that's the, the next best defense is to be as clear as possible and 
explain to the government with your bid or like you're saying through the other mechanisms with as much specificity as you can exactly what you're doing, what you're not doing. And then if someone brings a claim later, the government knowledge defense is an absolute defense. So the government had knowledge of the specifics of what you're doing, then the relator or the government, if some other government entity tries to bring something, are barred from taking the case forward. The kicker with that is that just from my own experience with DOJ and even various IGs, they take a very skeptical view of the government knowledge defense, similar to the way we described um, the negligence defense. They're going to want to look at it and say, okay, is that where you're going to go? If you go negligence or you go government contract defense, they basically call your bluff. And they say, okay, if that's where you're going to go, I want to see exactly what you said. And they're going to really dissect that. I had one case where this colonel on this base sent a letter. We had a letter from the colonel saying, I know you did X, Y, Z. I know you're doing that. You're doing a great job. No problem. The XYZ in that case was the crux of the False Claim Act matter. However, the Department of Justice there said, well, just having someone know that you're doing XYZ doesn't show us that that person had sufficient knowledge to render a legal opinion as to the sufficiency or the lack thereof of your performance and whether or not you were actually violating rules. And so if you have selective disclosures or you're sitting there trying to say, well, we know we're not complying, but we don't want them to know. So let's tell them we're doing this and this and this, and we won't say that we're not doing certain things. We'll rephrase it. That's actually worse for you because then that shows that you knew you weren't compliant and you were trying to actively hide it, which is going to basically make the case for DOJ that it was knowing. The cover-up's always worse than the crime, isn't that what yes. they say, Dave? Yeah, they do. All right. Well, this has been super helpful. Very. This is a really cutting-edge topic, I think. Great symmetry between the cyber group and the FCA group. I mean, what I'm taking away is we're going to see what happens with Aerojet. Is this the canary in the coal mine? We're going to start to see a lot more cases along these lines, or maybe, maybe it ends up not seeming as big as it is now because maybe Aerojet wins or it settles and it goes away. CMMC coming down the pike, moving maybe to an, a, a standard that's easier for more folks to get their arms around because you've got to go get a piece of paper that says, no more do-it-yourself. We're going to go get certified. So any, any other final thoughts or wrap-up points? No, I think it's good. Just be aware. Be aware. Pay attention. Yeah, I think be aware. It's everywhere. So it's really going to be hard for you to avoid this. Once you start digging into it, you start seeing it everywhere that it's a little bit uh, broader than you had originally intended or intended to investigate. But cybersecurity in particular, it's happening. It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to tie in those privacy elements. You're going to get more HIPAA compliance. You're going to get ISO standards. You're going to get NIST standards. You're going to have CMMC standards. The DFARS is going to be amended. The FAR regulation on CUI, that's going to be amended. Like all of these things are going to happen in a very short time frame, relatively speaking. And it's going to be something to, to make sure that you stay on top of because that is your competitive advantage of being compliant. It's a good time to get a pulse check. You know, reach out to us to do a compliance check to hedge against some unscrupulous lawyer. We don't have any of those here. 
Right. <laughs> uh, some unscrupulous plaintiff's lawyer and disgruntled former employee that might bring a false claims that case. Well, fellas, this is this was great. Thank you so much. Sai Alba, Dave Schaefer, we appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polaro Mazza production. Music credits go to bensound.com, and I've been your host, John Williams. Next time on XRL Radio, we'll be talking to Sarah Nash from our Labor and Employment Group about False Claims Act enforcement in the construction industry. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts.